Welcome to This Strange Life. I am Mickey, the conduit between the freaks and the geeks. And uh, good to be here. This is uh, Willie Delius going no nickname this week. And as <laughs> usual, Jimmy, a.k.a. Brian, Ryan Breadbin. <laughs> oh, Ryan, okay. So, Jimmy, I, I want you to lead this tonight, my brother. So, okay. who, who have we got with us tonight? Who's this oh, extraordinary man, this man is, on the this line? This is a guy who I've been following for several years. Super cool guy. Uh, John Ziegler. Now, John is a nationally syndicated talk host. He's uh, a media columnist, a filmmaker, a uh, TV commentator. Um, so super, super cool to have you here, John. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, guys. Okay, John. Now, the burning question that I've got for you firstly, and this is what the world wants to hear, is when are we going to hear another episode of John... And his young daughter's podcast. <laughs> um, well, my, my daughter on. Grace, my daughter Grace, uh, just turned six, uh, and she has done uh, the the radio show and the podcast on several occasions, and she's a star in the making, and she's um, she's much more interesting than I am. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, hopefully, that'll happen before the uh, the podcast. Uh, gets terminated she's, she's made me promise she's made me promise that she'll she'll go on at least one more time before we end the show brilliant brilliant and what's her catchphrase john it's costing money it's costing money <laughs> perceptive honestly really. it is it's fantastic just uh, i think you've had her on two or three times right john and uh, she's it's, a star it's in the making. Fantastic! Right? She's brilliant. She's awesome, and, and you know, it's it's great. You you have to listen to those podcasts. So, I just thought I'd kick us off on on that note, John, because uh, you know, like I say, it that's the burning question on everybody's <laughs> lips. So, obviously, John, you you're, you're you've done a, a massive. You you've probably done the most extensive. Uh, investigation into the Penn State University Jerry Jerry Zandusky uh, case that is, shall we say, a little bit counter to what the mainstream media has uh, led us to believe. And I think my first question is to you: What, from a a personal and a professional perspective, how much has this cost you? going against the media narrative and then after that we, we'll, we'll set the scene for our for our listeners and 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 just sort of give them some background to the story but firstly what's that personal and professional price that you've had to pay well uh it's been enormous it's hard to know exactly how large because you never know what would have happened if you hadn't gone down this path. Yep. Uh, for, the, for those that do not know or remember, uh, in 2011, this was the biggest story in all of America and has been one of the biggest stories in America for 
several years, although it's starting to finally die down now. <clears throat> and uh, and I have no connection to Penn State at all. Mm. I, although I grew up in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. nowhere near uh, State College where Penn State University is. And, um, and I just kind of through um, happenstance and through following my journalistic instincts and knowing a lot about how the news media is very uh, easily fooled in situations like this, I have um, found that virtually everything that the media has reported about this case is not just wrong, but it's 100% wrong. The entire case is upside down. And and um, I've often described this as going uphill uh, into the wind on ice with lead bricks around my <laughs> ankles um, because uh, it's basic, It's literally me me against the world. It, it is. Um, it really is. And, and and the, and the and the bizarre part is, I'm the one with all the facts. Yep. I'm the one with all the truth. And what I think one of the one of the many things about this story that has kept me going, other than the fact that no one else can and will do it properly, is that I think this story is so much larger than Penn State or Jerry Sandusky or Joe Paterno or anybody else that was directly involved, because I think it shows that at least in this era, the truth has lost its power. Uh, The truth is now a 98-pound weakling when it goes up against a narrative that the media is in love with. I have often described this as me trying to convince a colony of five-year-olds, like my daughter, that there is no Santa Claus. (laughs) Uh, um, um, Good luck with that. Uh, Exactly. you, You have no chance because... You're trying to convince people of something they don't want to be convinced of because it's very much in their self-interest to keep believing a fairy tale. But that's mm-hmm. what this is. It's a fairy tale. And, and it's and the most remarkable aspect of it is that it's not close. It's not even it's not even remotely close. <laughs> and so and, when you do um, that, pe- people come and attack you. Like when you search John Ziegler, it's people calling you names about the Jerry Sandusky case. So that's kind of where you're at, right? You're dealing with a well, lot of that stuff. I, I, I mean, there's so many ways I could articulate the cost involved. I mean, from a professional standpoint, you know, my career is, is dead for all intents and purposes. And, and I can't even, like, I can't even function on Twitter because if I engage in an argument with a, uh, a high profile media person and I uh, have them dead to rights and the facts, all they have to do is go, this is the guy that thinks Jerry Sandusky is innocent. You, and and it's a and they think it's a mic drop, yeah. you know that yeah that, that um oh you know he's he's a whack job or a moron, and of course I know a thousand times more about the case than these people do or, or, or a globalist shill, well, exactly. right? And, yeah, but that's exactly why we're here. And John, I've I've heard you say this on more than one occasion: is that the 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 other side, the 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 mainstream narrative. They can they can condense this into less than 140 characters. Whereas John, I mean, we'll get to this further into the interview. He's written this. I mean, he, the amount of stuff that you've done on this is extremely uh, detailed. But you're unable to put this into the 140 characters, right, John? So that that's well, that, that's I mean, the could, strength could, that they well, have. I, I, I could put it in 140 characters. The problem is that. The burden of proof on my side is so insanely high, yeah. right. uh, and and the burden of proof on their side is non-existent. So um, 
they they could say in um, in 140 characters that um, you know that that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile and Penn State covered it up and case closed. I mean, yeah. that's all that's their that's their story. And so, um, and none of that is remotely true or makes a wit's worth, worth of sense. And and I have and in order to disprove a negative, it's everyone knows disproving a negative is virtually impossible. So it's, it's a Santa Claus I, going back to Santa Claus. Right. So so for our listeners, John, who, who are not aware, can you just sort of set the scene and, and just give us a little bit more insight into the sort of timelines that we're dealing with? How does the Zendesky allegations came about? I mean, obviously, it's on the back of the Catholic Church pedophile sort of crisis that came out that was sort of affecting people's, uh, uh, you know, people's perception on, on these sorts of things. And uh, there was a whole host, whole host of other stuff that was happening as well, you know, whether it was, well, you, you know, know, the mainstream media narrative or the local political elections that were sort of happening behind the scenes. There's all of these dynamics that were, uh, that probably not a lot of people are aware of, which essentially hung Jerry out to dry, uh, hung, hung him out. Um, you know, on on on, in in the the public court of opinion without due process, right? Can can you just sort well, of take us back and and just give us a a two or three minute synopsis of of what we're dealing with and in, in, from that perspective? Well, your analysis is very astute, uh, as you imply the the perfect storm of factors that were involved here, and the Catholic Church scandal was a huge part of this. Because in yep. the mid two, mid two thousand era, uh, you you had a, a Catholic Church scandal that was was bursting out all over the world, but but also in, specifically in Pennsylvania. So you were effectively training the media and the politicians and the prosecutors and the public that this idea of older males having sex. Uh, with uh, with boys was was plausible, okay? Yep. Um, and, yep. and and so much of of why this case got lost is because of our unwillingness to talk honestly about topics that are deemed to be politically incorrect. Mm. And mm. with regard to the, and I I grew up Catholic, right? I went to Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic college. I, I know a lot of priests. The essence of the Catholic priest scandal, which no one wants to talk about, is that the vast majority of those cases were gay priests having sex with teenage boys they perceived to either be gay or on their way to being gay. Mm, mm. That is now that I'm not in any way, she reformed defending that, but that's what it was. Yep. That is not remotely the allegation <laughs> it in the is Jerry not, is it? it's, it's uh, crazy and, and and but that but that premise that this is plausible it is plausible for an old man to have uh, horrible sex acts with teenage boys and no one ever say anything about it and there be no evidence of it um and it happened for years and for the, those boys to uh then you know, be very, very, very close to their to their abuser for for decades. 
but later then, is is absurd. Now, it is completely absurd. Yeah, and hey, John, it's it's Mike here. So the the mainstream narrative, and and I've heard this parroted around, uh, you know, multiple sources, is that it was covered up because there was so much money involved. Uh, you know, so much money involved in 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 the program that that it, it was basically covered up, right? Because people didn't want the for years and years. Right, well, see, yeah. See, yeah. See, okay. Here's the thing. Everything about this case is reverse engineered. So they have this allegation, and let me just review for those who don't know or can't remember. But so after the Catholic Church scandal breaks, there's a, there's one allegation by a teenage boy, a 15-year-old named Aaron Fisher, later mm. known as victim number one, who makes an allegation against Jerry Sandusky that at first is very, very vague. Uh, and then it grows with the help of a therapist. All right. It, and it so, grows substantially. It's it's substantial. it's just so, incredible. But please go right, ahead, right. John. Please go right. ahead. So 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 that's what that's what starts it, and and because um, of what it, everyone being primed, if you will, by the the Catholic Church scandal, everyone thinks that this is this is plausible. And so once they accept that the, these crimes were committed, and once the perfect storm creates this this stampede eventually uh, of allegations all because there's a hundred million dollars on the table now they need a motive for why it happened mm -hmm. and so that's what i mean by the reverse engineering mm -hmm. so they reverse engineer a motive that somehow well they got to figure out well jerry sandusky couldn't have gotten away with this without penn state's help why would penn state want to help him because joe paterno his legendary head coach was known as this this paragon of moral virtue why would he do this well he must have been protecting the program well there's a there's a huge problems with that first of all the only episode we know of that joe paterno was specifically told of happened after jerry sandusky had already retired yep he wasn't he wasn't part of the program so so right off the bat it's an absurdity i mean it's an absurdity but wasn't wasn't he still around the program jerry Actually, no. Not at all. I mean, he was given. He was sort of given. Uh, he had. Com I, I don't know what the term is, but he he was allowed to come in to. He was an he was, emeritus. Thank he, you. He had emeritus Thank you, John. Status. Yeah. But so he, he was allowed to use was, the facilities. But, he was allowed to go in there. And I mean, okay, this guy but, was a rock star, man. He was so revered by. Are you talking about Sandusky or Paterno? Both of them. Uh, both, but but both Sandusky, Sandusky as well. But right. let, let's, I mean, you brought up uh, Aaron Fisher. Now, the, the end result of Aaron Fisher's involvement in this case is a $7.5 million payout. This is a guy that's a super sexually charged guy, uh, which is super unusual, you know, for any victim of, of sexual assault. Um, he also had a girlfriend, an ex-girlfriend called Megan Kern. And she disputes many of his points. And it sort of got to, you You sort of alluded to this earlier on, John, where it started off as a very small story and then it grew and it grew and it grew to the point where I think he said there's about 100 different sex acts or 100 different uh, and, uh, um, points his... at which Jerry Zandusky forced Aaron Fisher to... to yeah. you know, on, for, for these sex acts. And, and, and his girlfriend uh, is saying that, she, that he's full of shit. Basically, well, she, there's certainly a lot of holes, isn't there, John, that she points well, that she points to just, in the story, right? 
It's not just her. I have uh, interviews with uh, at least 13 people on the record, on tape, or in, or I think one or two of them are via instant messages, but all of them in their own names, which is incredibly difficult to get in a case this toxic. Yep. I have thir- 13 people exceedingly close to Aaron Fisher. I'm talking about ex-girlfriends. I'm talking about friends during the time of the accusations, parents of friends during the time of the accusations, relatives of his, uh, people who were supportive of him to the point where they sponsored rallies on his behalf. So these are 13 people, all of whom directly connected to Aaron Fisher against their self-interest in their own names who have come forward to me. I didn't pursue any of them. They came forward to me because they knew I was investigating the case to say, I don't believe Aaron Fisher, and here's why I don't believe Aaron Fisher. And by the way, I would say at least four or five of those 13 are sex abuse victims themselves. Well, wasn't and, and so, uh, wasn't Aaron's girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, uh, an abuse victim, right? Yes, I, 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 I'm pretty of, sure she, she was. was. And all of was. these victims, John, they came to you after the fact, right? Was it after the, the verdict was, was put down right. and, and Zendusky well, because, was in prison? Well, but, because people need to... Yes, because people need to understand the hysteria yeah. that that overtook this case. This was a witch hunt. Once Joe Paterno, the legendary Joe Paterno, gets fired and then dies this two months later, um, Jerry Sandusky is not just a pedophile. He's the pedophile that killed Santa Claus. Yeah. And so – and he gets convicted seven months after his arrest, which is impossible. It, it, it's amazing. And, and Willie, you know. All, all of these people that came forward to John, they all didn't think that this tiny piece of the puzzle that they had actually mattered. You but, know what but I mean? Weren't there, it's, it's weren't there dozens and dozens of, of victims? There was 30, well, that, 30 complainants, right? Uh, well, so uh, John, so have let, you looked into yeah, all of that? Yeah, that's what I want to get at is okay, beyond just victim me, one. Right. So victim one is everything in this case. And here's the um, – the best analogy I've come up with to explain this phenomenon of all these accusers, although, frankly, when there's $100 million on the table and all of these guys are now multi-millionaires, I don't know that it requires a hell of a lot of explanation. But I have, I have used the analogy of the Loch Ness Monster. Nobody ever thought there was a Loch Ness Monster until people started saying there was a Loch Ness Monster. Now, there is no Loch Ness Monster. But once people start saying it, now all of a sudden, ripples in the water or shadows in the water, which used to just be ripples and shadows, are all of a sudden deemed to be something very different and very nefarious. And that's what Aaron Fisher represented. Aaron Fisher represented the first guy who saw the Loch Ness Monster. And he was manipulated into seeing the Loch Ness Monster by a therapist by the name of Mike Gillum, who was a quack. Uh, who, 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 if you read his book, Mike Gillum wrote a book with Aaron Fisher and Aaron Fisher's mother. I urge anyone who's interested in this case to read the book. It is ridiculous. You know anything about the case? It's an absurdity. I've actually given away copies of his book at a press conference outside of the courthouse at one of Jerry Sandusky's appeal hearings to the media. What's in the I, book? The, the reality well, is, it's just there's there's so many things in the book that are fantasy. I see. I mean, this and and by the way, you also if you know what to look for, you're seeing how these connections work. I, so to the point of this, how did all these other accusers come about? Well, Mike Gillum was the the therapist for Aaron Fisher. When the trial comes about, 
Let me back up. When Jerry is arrested, there are only two people, two people (laughs) who are accusing Jerry Zandusky of engaging in direct sex acts with them. Two. One is Aaron Fisher. The other is victim number four. Guess who his therapist ends up being? Same one. Mike Gillum. (laughs) I mean, so so what happens here is you have this very this takes three years, three years, this slow process of turning Aaron Fisher into a victim. And then once you have the one solid victim or what they perceive to be solid, here's what they do. They go to a pool. Think about this, folks. Jerry Sadusky was in a unique situation. He had been the the founder of this charity back in 1978 that dealt with at-risk kids. So you had thousands, a pool of thousands of at-risk kids. Let's be clear who at-risk kids are. These are kids from horrible backgrounds. They're almost all poor. They've got either no dad or no mom or both. A lot of them have drug issues. A lot of them have been abused. So these are the Lockhaven kids, right? Right, right. So Lockhaven is where five key ones come from. This is where Aaron comes from. Lockhaven, Pennsylvania, the the second poorest city in all Pennsylvania, highest level of drug use, highest level of welfare. It's a 10,000 person city, Mickey. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just looks completely sort of barren and depraved and depressed and just what John is saying, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, these so people are out, you know. So you have so you have here the situation where slowly but surely every, you once you have Aaron Fisher and then you get this one alleged witness, Mike McQuarrie, you have this what I call the two. Pillars of this oh, case. Now, my now query is a fucking what? dick, dude. <laughs> well, that's true. But so, okay, but let let me just. This is important. Let me explain now. So, so you have Aaron Fisher and you have Mike McQuarrie. Investigators now have a list. Imagine you have a list of people because they know who the people who, who went to the Second Mile charity are. So you can go to hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and you can go fishing. And this is what they did. They, they, they went fishing and they said, look, oh, we got a, a guy who's an accuser of Jerry Sandusky. We got a guy who's a witness of Jerry Sandusky. We think he's a pedophile. We want to put this monster behind bars. Can you help us? Well, if you go to a pool of whatever it is, 500 or 1,000 people who have had horrible lives, it is incredibly easy that over a couple of years, you're going to eventually find a couple of people who are willing to either go with this, thinking this might help them. By the way, a lot of them are helped out by lawyers who I'm sure smelled the money immediately. Um, uh, who, by the way, one of the things that may have easily happened is that they projected their own real abuse onto Jerry Sandusky. Uh, so... This is not difficult, at least for me, it's not difficult to see how this can happen, especially when you look individually at each of their stories, as I have done. Yeah. And each of the individual stories is more ridiculous and more preposterous than it than okay. the previous. So, so can we dig into the, the Mike McQuarrie situation a bit? Because that's sort of what they is the sort of the smoking gun. Is that right? To, to the media, yeah. yes. In fact, so, they don't want to talk about Aaron Fisher. It's, so, it's so, funny. Aaron Fisher, interestingly, was not even the star witness at trial, which should be the first red flag. How is the first victim exactly. in a three-year but, investigation but, it, here, here's not my, your star? 
here's my theory on that, John. Is it because his story just changed so many times and he wasn't well, he, was a he wasn't a credible witness. witness? Exactly. So if he if you're the terrible. defense, he's the last person that you put on the stand, right? Right. Well, but but see, the prosecution never wanted to think about the fact that their case might suck. Uh, so so they just pretended. I mean, yeah, that's I would always love a factor. I, I would I would love to have been in the meetings where they're discussing. I mean, did, did anyone ever mention that? Hey, you know, if Aaron Fisher is not reliable, maybe our case isn't reliable because he's the only accuser for two years for two years of, of a deep investigation. So what so anyway, what do you think so my, happened that that day with, with McQuarrie? What's your version of the events? Did he just straight okay, so up lie? What, uh, well, I don't think he lied. I think he. I think here's what happened. I think what. What happened with Mike McQuarrie was that Mike McQuarrie went into a locker room at night on a date that he got wrong at least once, and I believe he got it wrong twice. And I'm not talking about just a little bit wrong. I'm talking about the date, the month, and the year he got wrong, I believe, twice. His narrative is that he sees Jerry Sandusky and a boy in a shower for two or three seconds through a mirror. That's his testimony. And Sandusky was meant to be raping this guy, this boy, well, right? Well, no, he's never, he's never said rape. He said he, he has testified that it was extremely sexual, yet he's also said he never saw uh, what he referred to as insertion. So my thought is always, okay, what, so what is it? What, what other sex acts is there but, in that situation? But, but what, if, and if he saw something, that's still a horrible thing, right? No, no, no. Hold on a second. You, you let me. You 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 want to finish? You let me. Let me finish. <laughs> Keep going. So, so, so you have to understand this full story. Yeah, everyone. See, what you just hit on is exactly why this case sprung out of control. Because everyone thinks a man and a boy in a shower alone. Oh my God! Nothing else could possibly be happening. Um, bullshit. Uh, there, first of all, uh, we know who the boy in the shower was. His name was Alan Myers. Alan Myers. As late as the day Jerry, after, or actually the day Joe Paterno was fired, three or four days after Jerry Sineski is arrested, as a sergeant in the Marine Corps who is married and who, by the way, invited Jerry Sandusky and his wife Dottie to his wedding and took a photo individually with Jerry in his Marine uniform, went, came forward and, and talked in great detail about his relationship with Jerry, what happened that night, how Mike McQuarrie is lying, that nothing ever happened that night. Jerry's the greatest thing that ever happened to him. He had written op-eds in the local newspapers uh, prior to Jerry's arrest, defending him, talking in detail about all the great things that Jerry had done for him and he had done uh, in his friendship with Jerry. Alan Myers was the guy in the shower. He was not abused. And isn't it interesting? It's very interesting. It's integral to the whole case that the, the prosecution does not present at trial a witness, a victim, for the Mike McQuarrie episode. Think about how utterly ridiculous that is. This is the most infamous case of child molestation, alleged child molestation, probably in the history of the world, mm -hmm. uh, within the, certainly in the modern media age. And here we have a situation where this horrible pedophile is on trial. We have the most important uh, episode of the case, the Mike McQuarrie episode. We've got $100 million on the table. Everybody knows that, that Penn State's paying out big money to anybody who's a victim here. 
there is worldwide media coverage. It's not possible that the victim does not know that Jerry Sadusky has been arrested and is on trial. And yet the prosecution can't produce a victim in that case. The, it, it, the victim is unknown only to God. That's absurd. It's an absurdity. Alan Myers, the reason why they didn't have a victim in that case is because Alan Myers was the was the boy in the shower. They didn't like Alan Myers' story because Alan Myers exonerates Jerry Sandusky. Mike McQuarrie walked in on Jerry and a boy playing around in the shower. And by the way, that's what Mike told Penn State at the time. We have three, at least three or four key witnesses more than that, depending on how you define it, who say exactly that, that Mike's story at the time was that he witnessed Jerry horsing around with a boy in a shower and it upset him. It's also important to point out part of the reason why Mike gets the date, the month and the year wrong twice is that he's never questioned about this till 10 years later. Now, you tell me how your perception of an event is going to shift in 10 years when investigators come to you and say, we believe Jerry Zanowski is a right. pedophile, right. We, we have Aaron Fisher who is, a, who is a, uh, a victim of this. We've been investigating this for two years now. Can you help us? We need a witness. Mike's going to go, holy shit. That thing I thought I saw 10 years ago that bothered me must have been way – it must have been the worst thing I possibly could have imagined. And then they start, they start putting – they so, start sowing seeds into yeah. Mike's mind. Right. About what he actually saw. Priming. And now all of a sudden you you have you have a completely different story that takes shape 10 years after the fact. And I still I maintain and I've written at our website, framingpaterno.com, which you can find all the information at framingpaterno.com. I maintain that Mike McQuarrie's actual timeline for how he came forward here is still completely wrong. Do you I think he told actual- Joe? Didn't didn't he tell Joe Paterno he saw something? What's your what's he your saw, read on that? Yes, on February tenth, two thousand one, he went to Joe Paterno's house, and according to Sue Paterno, who was there that day, who has by all accounts an amazing memory, I have an email from her which I exclusively posted at FramingPaterno.com, an email to someone directly involved in the case, where she says that meeting took three minutes. Three minutes as Joe Paterno, ironically enough, was getting out of the shower to go to travel to an event in Pittsburgh that day. May, three minutes. May, may three I, minutes. Yeah. May, may I interject for our audience and, and as a you know a guy from the UK who who doesn't know all these players who who's Joe Paterno is the legendary coach of Penn State. He's been coaching there since I don't know when, probably the 1950s, 60s. 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 And yeah. he was an old man by this point and just a complete legend of college football. So right. and, he and was and the Zendusky, head coach. Zendusky was the assistant coach. He was absolutely revered by the players. I mean, Penn State, uh, you know, during those times, they, they achieved Dominated. amazing, Incredible amazing success. Yeah. yeah. So he was kind of like a demigod in this small college town in Pennsylvania. So this this graduate assistant coach saw allegedly something in the shower and he went to query. he went to Paterno's house for three minutes yeah. and talked to him. And, okay. and and like what John says, there's so much money in, involved. I mean you know, high schools and universities in, in, in the US compared yeah, to the UK. College football, right? You know, they're, they're just like sort of five-star hotels compared yeah. to what, what we business. have in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's hundreds of millions of dollars on the table here. There's the reputation 
of, of the, the college. There's all of the endowment and all that sort of the investments and all that sort of stuff that goes on there, as well as the people that are, are, are putting in, uh, that, that are uh, sponsoring and, and putting in to the college what, what as well. So there's all of these dynamics, mate. It's, it's crazy. Can I, can I jump in here? Can I, can I jump Sorry, in? John. No, because what you're saying is important for people to understand why it is that Penn State effectively took responsibility for things that never even happened. It was because of the media firestorm. And what you're talking about is all the things that the Penn State Board of Trustees had to protect and so once they become convinced that something bad happened here, it's not their money they're giving away. Right. It's taxpayer money. Public they just money. Want to st- they just want to show the media how against pedophilia they are so that, this, that, so that Penn State will stop being the target of this. And so they, 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 start, they, they take responsibility for things that they had nothing to do with even if they did happen. And as I am now convinced – Never even happened to begin with. But just back to Mike McQuarrie real quick. Yeah. What I think really happened here, because I mentioned February 10th of 2001 is the one time we know for sure that that three-minute meeting takes place. And I I will maintain, I think anybody with common sense knows, in three minutes, you cannot tell anybody, especially not a legend like Joe Paterno, that Jerry Sadowski raped a boy. (laughs) Because if you say he raped a boy – it's going to take longer than three minutes because there's going to be a lot of follow-up questions. I, I'd say it would take Joe Paterno at least a minute and a half to get the first word out of his mouth, right? You know what I mean? Right, it, right. It's just insane. Right, so, right, right. So anyway, so but I don't think that's what happened. See, here's what I – here's what uh, – far uh, uh, more – because here's the problem. There's a lot of problems with February 10th because the idea here is that this must then have occurred February 9th. Well, the, there's a lot of problems, with, and they needed to be February 9th because they need Mike to be very agitated, right? They need they need that meeting with Joe Paterno to happen immediately to show urgency, to show that he is he has seen something horrible and he needs to tell somebody. So what what's the problem with February 9th? Well, Mike's original testimony 10 years after this is that this occurs over spring break because the campus is desolate. There's nothing going on. And that's he just wanders into the locker room. At first, he thought it was March 1st of 2002. uh, And and there's no one around. And the implication is that Jerry knows there's going to be no one around. And that's why he's he's raping a boy in the shower on a Friday night. Well, here's the problem. On February 9th, it's not spring break. Not only is it not spring break, there's a massive rock concert going on across the street, and there's a hockey game going on starting at the exact same time this incident would have occurred that's in the same building. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's not possible for him to have originally thought that there was nothing going on in camp. This is an incredibly busy night on campus, February 9th. But what is happening on February 9th? There is something much more important happening on February 9th. February 9th, it is now widely reported that the wide receivers coaching job at Penn State has now just opened up. At the time, Mike McQuarrie is a lowly graduate assistant. People need to understand that a graduate assistant is basically a slave. You're making almost you're, you're an intern. You're making no money. You, you have no job security. You're nothing until you're a full-time person. Mike McQuarrie, a former quarterback at Penn State, wanted the wide receivers coaching job. How do we know this? Because he would eventually be the wide receivers coach at Penn State three years later. He does not get the open job, which is 
to me, the ultimate proof there was no cover-up here. Because if there was a cover-up, that's the first thing that would happen. Right. Is that Mike McQuarrie would get that job. But why is the job important? The job, I believe, is why is the real reason Mike McQuarrie decides to go to see Joe Paterno. Mm. That's a hell of a coincidence. Mm. That the job you want, the job you get three years later, opens up the day before. You decide to get FaceTime with Joe Paterno. And it, it's also interesting to note that Mike McQuarrie, I believe in his subconscious running wild, testified that when he first called Joe Paterno and said, can I come over? Paterno allegedly says to him, don't if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. <laughs> well, Sue Paterno was there that day. And I, when I mentioned that comment to her in the very kitchen where this meeting between McQuarrie and Paterno allegedly occurred, she snapped at me and screamed, that never happened. Now, I've been around a lot of older couples who've been married for a long time, and if a woman adamantly says her husband never said anything and she was there that day, I take her word for it. I believe that what might really happened here is Mike McQuarrie's subconscious is creating that because guess what? The meeting really was about a job. That's why he wanted FaceTime with Joe Paterno. And I don't think that the episode occurred February 9th. I believe it occurred December 29th of 2000, mm -hmm. because that's the date that actually makes sense with regard to Jerry and Alan Myers. And it's completely consistent with their testimony, as well as the testimony of others, including the guy who Jerry Sadusky called from a gas station the night of December 29 2000 who had no idea why i was calling him to ask him about this episode but jerry's jerry's view or story on this checked out 100 and i have tried for four years now to find jerry sandusky in a lie and i can't find one and, and, and if he had done 100th and, of what he's accused of it would be easy to do and john so you, you went into is, prison two I, times I, right and you interviewed him in prison jerry I've interviewed Jerry Zandusky twice for three hours in prison. And I believe what really happened here is that Mike McQuarrie saw something that weirded him out. He talks to his dad and this doctor, John Dranoff, both of whom say that Mike never said anything about sex, neither of whom say for him to go to the police. Uh, I believe that I don't even know when that meeting occurred. It may have happened the night after that, not that night. It might have happened the day after somewhere in that time frame. And then I think Mike decides it's not worth going to see Joe, that it, this is too dangerous, that it's not that big of a deal. After he sleeps on it, he thinks, well, you know, whatever. Jerry's maybe just weird. Yeah, uh, this can't be this can't be real. I didn't really see anything. It was only for two or three seconds. And he sits on it. And then I think two things happen in that six-week time period. I think the Kenny Jackson job opens up, which gives Mike an offensive reason to go see Joe Paterno. And then I think something else occurs. And this is just a theory on my part. But I believe that what, what really happens here is that Mike McQuarrie's dad and Dr. Dranoff, and, uh, but it's probably his dad, inform him that they're going to go see Gary Schultz, who is effectively the head of the campus police, on another matter, they have a meeting on another matter, a business ma meeting scheduled with Schultz for late February. And I, and I think that they tell Mike, we're going to ask Gary about the update on what happened with your report about Jerry Sandusky, except Mike hasn't made a report about Jerry Sandusky. So now Mike's desperate. Now Mike needs to get a report in about Jerry Sandusky. Otherwise, he's going to look like a jackass when his dad asks Gary Schultz about the investigation, and Gary Schultz is like, what are you talking about? 
Mike never came to us. So now you have both an offensive and a defensive reason for why February 10th, 2001, is the date that Mike McCreary finally goes to see Joe Paterno after six weeks. Now, this, this, this is not consistent with a guy who having seen a sexual assault. This is a guy who saw something that weirded him out, who got in a, in a bad situation and handled it very, very poorly, only to be exaggerated even worse 10 years later when he was manipulated by investigators. And, and John, the, 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 this is also, I mean, that there's nothing there that says, you know, this is when Mike went to the police to report this or went to the administration or anything like this. I mean, it, it, it was a knock on Joe's door at his house, right? I mean, there was, there was nothing sort of official well, exactly. about people, this, people, right? People, um, people, for, you people know, forget. Please go ahead. People forget that if they, they, they lose their common sense in this. If Mike McQuarrie had really seen something that he thought was a crime, you don't go see Joe Paterno. Now, you might inform Joe Paterno, but you don't stop at going to Joe Paterno. You might. And by the way, if he had told Joe Paterno something that was a crime, Joe Paterno would have said, uh, you need to go talk to the police. <laughs> but exactly. That doesn't, exactly. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. And these are. And, and frankly, Joe Paterno got hung here after doing exactly what he was supposed to do. The NCAA handbook actually now it, it dovetails exactly with what Paterno did, which is incredibly ironic. He, you know, people part of the perfect storm here is that that the media likes to pretend that Joe Paterno ran the university. He did not run the no. university. He, he, he ran he ran the football program. He did not run the university. Uh, but because he was so famous and so perceived as powerful, everyone thinks, oh, well, everyone, whatever Joe wanted happened. Uh, I actually think that the key mistake in all of this was that the athletic director, Joe Paterno's boss, Tim Curley, when he talks to Jerry Sandusky, Jerry says to him, you can talk to the kid who was there. I don't know if he says his name, but he, he informs Alan Myers that Penn State might be calling, that Tim Curley might be calling. Tim Curley never makes that call. Yeah. If Tim Curley, if Tim Curley makes that call and Alan says, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything was fine. Jerry's awesome. Then, then now Penn state is covered. This is the, the McQuarrie story is destroyed right off the bat. And none of this happens 10 years later. I, and I, and I personally believe that Tim Curley is, is per, is very broken up about this. Uh, it is my understanding that he will literally not even discuss the case even with very close uh, friends, uh, he, he, he is in bad health. And I think that it is probably the greatest regret of his life that he it's, never it's made It's definitely that got to prey on one's conscience, right? You know, I mean, for goodness sake. But, yeah, I mean, what we're, what we're also forgetting to tell our listeners, John, is just, you know, the, the, the mindset of, uh, of Jerry, Jerry Zandusky. I mean... He 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 was very. Uh, I don't know if you you you'll agree with me here, but he was very uh, very naive, very almost sort of childlike in his and very pure uh, in in his sort of uh, the way that he looked at these kids. I mean, they were his boys. I mean, yeah. here's a guy. He's, he's you know right. same wife for 35 40 50 years adopted six kids you know mile two charity yeah. and, and 
And do you he, think when this, when all this stuff broke, he, he he maybe was a little bit innocent there as well, and didn't realise the significance of the situation? That's what I think, and I, th- I think that's what you've highlighted let's, as well, John. I mean, there, there have been plenty of uh, opportunities for Jerry to really sort of redress what what what's been said in the media, but. I don't know who was who was coaching him, and in, in terms of, you know, the sort of PR people that would need to be involved, I would assume nobody, right, because the guy is as innocent as the pure driven snow, right, right, John? I mean, how many times well, had Jerry put his foot you've hit, in his mouth? You know, I mean, how many times? He certainly didn't help his case, oh, right? A hundred percent. And and frankly, um, when when he did that now infamous Bob Costas interview, that was the first time I thought he might actually be innocent because I'm thinking there's no way a guy who's that bad at a talker could get away with this for 40 years. It's not possible. Uh, that is that to me was far more consistent with a guy who has no idea what's going on around him. And as I interviewed him and got to know the people around him and, and communicated with him many, 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 many times. Let me tell you. Can, uh, can, your can idea I just of quote Jerry that? Is naive. Can can I quote that uh, that interview, John, or, or or the or can you quote the uh, the Bob Costa? The, 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 there were two questions, the, the, weren't there? The, the, just just so our audience can well, see. I think it was Costa said. Are, are you sexually attracted to young boys to underage boys? Zendusky, am I sexually attracted to underage boys? Zendusk, uh, Custis, yes. Zendusky, sexually attracted. You, you know, I enjoy young people. I love to be around them. But no, I'm not sexually attracted to young boys. And this went out nationwide, right? Yeah, that was, well, it's important for context for people to understand. Uh, he already had, uh, you know, to put it in baseball terms, two and a half strikes against him at this point. The, the public has their pitchforks out. They're looking for anything to condemn him because Joe Paterno's already been fired. Penn State's already pled guilty on his behalf. So everyone already, he has no presumption of innocence at this point. And that answer was moronic. But now that I've gotten to know Jerry Sandusky, it actually makes perfect sense. It was sense. typical. Because here's why. Well, well, first of all, that's the way he talks. Number two, uh, he's incredibly naive, and I don't think he's ever even thought about the idea that he might be sexually attracted to young boys. And here's why. There's medical proof behind this. I don't think Jerry Sandusky is a sexual person at all. I don't believe Jerry Sandusky ever went through proper puberty. I believe that he has a genetic condition, which if we got a DNA test, which we've been trying to get, the proper one uh, would prove this. A lot of other people agree with me. Has he got kids? But if you look at his medical records. Six, six adopted you, kids. So, so no, no, you, pater- you, no, no, no paternal. He, no. He okay. hasn't fathered any no children. No paternal kids. He's got some, some sort and, of gonaditis I, or something like that, John, right? Hypogonadism. Hypogonadism. He has hypogonadism. He has, he has almost no testicles, folks. This is incredibly important. This is incredibly important from two perspectives. One, I believe it goes to my theory that he is asexual. He has yeah, almost yeah. no testicular matter. But, but, but number number two, um, well, there's three elements. Number two is uh, you could, are, it's hard to uh, imagine how a 60-some-year-old guy with no gonads uh, is is anally raping teenage boys. I mean, just from a 
purely functional standpoint, that's absurd, uh, especially teenage boys who are not gay. Not one of them is gay. Not one of them was plied with alcohol. Not one was plied with drugs. Not one was paid with money. Not, not one. That's not possible. And number three, if you have 36 guys getting paid by Penn State, at least 30 of them or around 30 of them have claimed intimate knowledge of Jerry Sandusky sexually. How is it that not one of them has ever mentioned he has no gonads? Not one of them. You're not, that's absurd. But but well, so, that's that, that's a uh, that's just fact that he's got no 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 balls. Gonads. I have I have the medical records that were before any of the allegations became public. <laughs> so, I mean, well, I'm, so, I'm sorry, John. What what what, what do the medical records say that, that they describe the size of his? Well, I mean, what do they say? They yes. say, okay. Yes, right. virtually no testicular matter. Mm. So, period. So because, that's a quote. Because virtually of that, John. No testicular matter. Okay, so because of that, do you, do you think that's the reason why he's so sort of chilled and mellow and, you know, the, 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 I mean. Yes, the, he has no testosterone. The, the testosterone yes. levels must be almost zero, right? You know what I mean? He has almost, almost zero testosterone. Is Almost it, zero. And, and, and here, and, he, herein lies a paradox. I mean, we, we've got a fucking super, super uh, coach, uh, you know, who's all about winning. He's all about giving direction. He's all about all of these sorts of things. But he's literally 10% of the male in terms of testosterone count that, uh, you know, anybody running around on the pitch is, you know? Well, unfortunately, this is not presented at trial, which was another example of the abject incompetence of the defense and how overwhelmed they were by the media firestorm. But the reality is that, that I, I think that that goes to the Costas interview because I don't think Jerry has ever thought in sexual terms about hardly anything. I've been around a lot of football coaches in my life. I've coached football in high school. I have covered football and the high school, college, and pro level as a journalist. Let me tell you something. Football coaches are hypersexually charged, almost all of them. They all make sexual jokes. It is a, a testosterone-heavy environment. No one I have ever come in contact with has ever said that Jerry Zingusky would even make a joke about sex, even allude to sex. This is a guy who never smoked, never drank, never cursed. Nothing. He is the antithesis. And, and, and by the way, one of the things we really need to mention here is there should be massive amounts of evidence by this point. There's this perception that these crimes can occur with no evidence. That's bullcrap. There's not one shred of pornography in this case. Mm. I defy anybody, anybody to find another serial pedophile in the modern era where there has not been one shred not a shred of pornography found. And there is zero chance that Darius Sadusky was able to wipe pornography from his computer because Jerry Sadusky barely knew how to do email and couldn't work his phone properly. So there is, it is an absurdity on its face. Not one payoff, not one non-disclosure agreement. As I've said earlier, no drugs, no alcohol, no DNA, nothing. There should be massive 
massive amounts of evidence. So what do you and think of the way none, what do you think of the way ESPN specifically covered this and would you relate it to any other anything like the Duke lacrosse case or any of those other kind of rush to uh, assumption and then the facts come out later? How would you describe ESPN's coverage well, he, of this and ESPN ESPN is the reason why this happened. And it's and it's and here's why. Because it was the middle of November of 2011. And November is a rate, especially back then, was a ratings sweet month for television stations in America. Baseball had just ended. The NBA basketball season was not starting like it should because there was a strike going on. Uh, no one cares about hockey at that point. Football was in the lull of the middle of the season. And all of a sudden, you have this story break. And for the first two days, when it was about Jerry Sandusky, no one cared. And then all of a sudden, Joe pa. ESPN was able to turn it into a Joe Paterno story. And you have this Greek tragedy of Joe Paterno's downfall literally the week after he had become the winningest coach in the history of college football. That's a hell of a story. And once Joe Paterno, once that narrative, once they, they jump onto that narrative, it creates a, a series of perfect storms. It creates a forward momentum that never stops. Because why? Because now the media is invested. Because yeah. they, they, they not only ended Joe Paterno's career, they killed him. He died two months later. I've, so I've now been they're a, invested. I've, in I've been an ESPN watcher my whole life, and I remember that in, in November 2011. It was almost to the level of like September 11th coverage on ESPN. Like It was day after day. Yes. It was all they talked about. And for a yes. sports network, you know, you go there to watch sports, and it was for so long. It was Sandusky, Sandusky, Sandusky. I, I, anecdotal, but I, I truly remember that. Uh, trust me, I have all the tapes, um, and it's it was horrendous. I've done a film about this called "The Framing of Joe Paterno," which you can find on YouTube. Yeah, and it, it and it's and it and it absolutely created its own momentum because once they they get Joe Paterno's firing, now they own it, and now they don't want to admit that they were wrong, especially once he dies. And so then, when the free report comes out. The ESPN has their pom-poms out cheering for their boyfriend who just scored the winning touchdown in the homecoming game because they were so afraid that maybe they blew it. And then and once the free report comes out, now Penn State's paying off $100 million, and now the narrative is set in stone. So what was and the so free report these, real quick? These things, the, free the free report was the report that Penn, Penn State itself commissioned to look at what happened happened here by former FBI director Louis Free, who got paid $8 million or whatever it was, right. come to the conclusion that he knew what Penn State wanted, which was to blame the dead guy and the three administrators who weren't at the school anymore. Uh, that's what the media wanted. That's yeah. what that's what Free wanted, the Penn State board wanted. We have, and I, again, I have revealed it from com. we have the front page, the first page of the Free Report work product this is what the free report, you know, their internal work product, the first page at the top of the first page, someone from the free group has handwritten in capital letters with an exclamation point, no evidence of this in their first wow. paragraph. And that you can see that at framingpaterno.com. The, the free report was a joke. In fact, if you look very carefully at the free report, it actually exonerates Joe Paterno. And frankly, 
I believe, if you really look deeply, it exonerates Jerry Sandusky because it should have massive amounts of evidence. Right. And there's none. These crimes don't take place in a vacuum. Okay. There's, it is not possible. It is not possible for a, a moron and a dunce and a naive knave like Jerry Sandusky to have committed these types of crimes and nobody know anything about it. Mm-hmm. No, nobody, even in retrospect. No. And I, I, I take a look. I ask people to compare this to the Larry Nasser case. Larry Nasser, the gymnastics doctor. Yep. Everything about these two cases, and they've been, they've been compared. They've been compared by lots of media. Everything about the Nasser case is totally different because Nasser was guilty. And by the way, Nasser had a way of getting his victims naked and vulnerable because. He was a doctor using a legitimate medical procedure for plausible deniability. Jerry didn't have anything like that. <laughs> and, and, and yet the, the two cases have been compared. Uh, there's all sorts of differences. Nasser's wife left him immediately. Jerry's wife visits him in prison every single week and has maintained, and I've gone on the Today Show with her to maintain his innocence against her own self-interest. He still lives in state college, which she would never do if she thought he was guilty because it's far more difficult for her to live there than it would be for her to live uh, elsewhere. Uh, Nasser had lots of porn. Nasser pled guilty. Where is Jerry Zanowski's confession? All these guys confess. And Jerry has a less of a chance of ever getting out of prison than anybody because of the politics involved in this case. Why hasn't he confessed? He never even talked to a plea bargain. The prosecution, uh, you know, uh, proffered a plea bargain to his defense, and Jerry wanted nothing to do with it. Why? Because it, he's innocent. Because he's in, exactly. And you obviously a lot of people know about Joe Paterno but t- tell us tell us a couple of things couple of points because I think we've got about sort of 15 20 minutes left John um, is it possible you could tell us a couple of things about Scott Paterno what was his involvement in the case who is he and, and why does he matter Scott Paterno to me is the is integral to the whole case Scott Paterno is Joe Paterno's son Scott Paterno is an obese loser uh, who even lost for uh, Republican primary for Congress by a, a large margin back when the paternal name was gold in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's done nothing but live off his last name. Yep. And for some reason, when this when this thing broke uh, or started to break, Joe Paterno used Scott as his lawyer. Somehow Scott passed law school and, and I guess passed the bar. It couldn't have been and anything so, to do with uh, his name, right? Joe decided... Well, I, I frankly think that Joe Paterno didn't think that this was a very big deal. And so he knew he didn't do anything <laughs> he wrong. He was like so, eight, in his uh, 80s you know, at that point, what, almost what, died. Right. He's an old man. He's like, hey, Scott, why don't you handle it? <laughs> well, this was a massive, massive mistake because Scott is a moron. And, uh, and Scott has a massive ego. And, and as we know with uh, Donald Trump, that's a bad combination. When you have a massive <laughs> ego... And, uh, and you're a moron, uh, bad things happen. And, a, and a short, long and short of it is, Scott gets duped. Scott gets duped by a local reporter by the name of David Jones, who was an anti-Joe Paterno uh, Penn State uh, football reporter. He gets duped by David Jones into thinking that Jerry is guilty. And 
then when his father gets a subpoena to testify to a grand jury, he immediately goes into panic mode, and we need to separate ourselves from Jerry. Now, politically, I understand why Scott thought this was the right thing to do. And in fact, it was 100% the worst thing that he could have done, not just for, for justice in general, but for Joe in particular. And the key moment comes in the middle of the crisis on November 8th, 2011, the day before Joe Paterno was fired, Scott, in the middle of this firestorm, goes out on his dad's front lawn with hundreds of cheering uh, Penn State students and a media horde, and he effectively declares Jerry Sandusky guilty, saying that lots of boys were damaged. We need to pray for the victims. Now, Scott does this thinking thinking that somehow this is going to buy time for Joe Paterno or separate Joe Paterno and maybe save his job. Well, in reality, this was the end of Joe Paterno because now the, the, the Penn State board doesn't have to worry about whether Jerry's guilty. They can never fire Joe unless they know for sure Jerry's guilty, right? Because otherwise they look like complete jackasses if they fire Joe Paterno and, and Jerry is innocent. But, but effectively, Joe Paterno has just declared Jerry's guilty because his son said so on his front yard. If, so the next day they fired Joe Paterno, exactly the opposite thing of what Scott thought he was going to do. And what happens is it, in, and it invests, it invests Scott Paterno, much like it invested the media. It invests Scott Paterno in Jerry's guilt, because if Jerry is innocent, guess whose fault all of this is? It's <laughs> Scott Paterno's fault. And so Scott cannot cannot bear to have that happen, and that's why Scott has uh, killed any chance of, of the truth ever getting any real traction here, because the media always says, well, if Jerry Sandusky was innocent, the Paterno family would be saying so, but they're not smart enough to realize that all the incentives are upside down here, and that that's not true, that the Paterno family through Scott is invested in Jerry's guilt, at least as much as the media is. So, John, and that's could, could, part could, of why. Sorry, uh, could 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 we possibly say that this was a strategic sort of fumble at the touchline, and it, it just completely sort of blew things. I mean, not as far as the me mainstream media are concerned, but from a strategic sense that you're talking about. I remember that that press conference I mean, that he's talking about. It was sake. outside Joe Paterno's home, I believe is when he's talking about at night, which is like on campus. Oh, it's this old God. cute home and he so walks out and there's and the and students were behind him like chanting like we are Penn State. And so it just, I don't think it came off the way oh that God. Scott probably intended it to. What, what do you it think, was, John? Well, there were, there were two different media episodes where Scott humiliated himself. Uh, he was completely—he was completely in over his head. But you know, the irony is that in, in to a lot of the media, because this—they're everyone's in bed on this together. They're all invested in the Santa Claus fairy tale. The funny part is that to to a lot of the media, Scott's the one hero here. Right. And by the way, to parts of his family, Scott's the hero because Scott was the guy who gets credit for being the first person to realize that Joe was in trouble. Now, that's hilarious because the reason why Joe was in trouble was because of Scott. Uh, and and because if he had, if Joe had, you know, Joe kept saying to Scott, we got nothing to worry about, we got nothing to worry about, because Joe knew the truth. Scott didn't know Jerry Sandusky from any from a hole in the wall. He never spoken to Jerry Sandusky. Was Scott but in see, the, the football program? Thing, was Scott involved in the he football had nothing program? To do with the football. Nothing. Okay. Sorry. No. Go ahead. Other than 
other than just as a hanger on. No, sure. no, he had no knowledge. He had no knowledge at all. But people think that he must have because he's Joe Paterno's son. Yeah, <laughs> I think I thought that. Joe, interestingly, Joe's other son, Jay Paterno, who was an assistant coach and who knew Jerry well, I would bet anything, anything, and he's on the board of trustees right now, Jay knows that, that Jerry is innocent. Jerry, Jay has basically told me this in person back in 2012 when I thought Jerry was guilty and I thought Jay was out of his mind. But he would never Jay put that knows. on the record, though, would he? He would never put that He's on the record. He would never put that on the record because, one, it'll destroy any chance he has of rebuilding his career. Yeah. It'll cause a family rift. And he doesn't have the balls. Politics. But and, Jay, yeah. knows, Jay, Jay knows Jerry is innocent because Jay knows who Jerry was. Jay Paterno was sending his, his children to Jerry's house for birthday parties just before his arrest. Wow. I mean, so, so I mean, the, the, the reality is... That Jay knows, um, but because of that rift between Jay and Scott, I mean, basically Jay is smart but gutless, and Scott is a moron but has big balls. So, so, so it's John, a bad combination. I, I'm curious as to your relationship with the Paterno family when you started investigating this, and then how it's evolved up into today. What can you just talk us through your involvement with the Paterno family personally? Well, my involvement with the paternal family has been very limited because I, I wanted nothing to do with with the paternal family as far as a official alliance because I wanted to figure out what happened on my own and I didn't want to have my credibility questioned because I was doing the bidding of the paternal family. Right. Ironically enough, I think I'm the only part of the reason why I was able to find the truth is because I'm not connected to Penn State. A Penn Stater could never find the truth in this case because they're too beholden to the paternal family and in order to understand how this case evolved you have to understand scott paterno's role now to answer your question more directly i have had numerous conversations with scott uh, scott has lied about me on numerous occasions in dramatic fashion in fact when scott started to lie about me dramatically publicly i started to realize okay either he's a complete moron who's capable of believing anything without any proof, which may be the, the fact, uh, and or he's a lying sack of shit who's not to be trusted. He, uh, so, so, um, uh, so, uh. so, so Scott, of all the people, of all the people I have disdain for, and I have disdain for hundreds of people in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I have, I have incredible anger towards numerous people, but Scott Paterno is clearly at the top of the list. And it's not because Scott will tell you that it's because he didn't cooperate with me, which is hilarious. Uh, the reality is I hate him because this is his fault mm. and all of it's his fault. And he won't fix it because of his own damn ego uh, and or stupidity. Um, so I, I, that's my relationship with Scott. Jay, I spent about three hours with in his, in his living room, in uh, over Labor Day weekend of, of 2012, uh, we, and he told me all sorts of amazing things at the time I hadn't fully understood the context for because I thought Jerry was guilty at that time. Right. Uh, but now I realize that Jay, that Jay, Jay, I think was on on the trail here before hardly anybody because again Jay knew his dad, Jay knew Jerry, Jay knew the board, Jay had been interviewed by the free. Jay tells the story of of um, some of the investigators coming to. To, to tell him that he placed 
some of his second state uniforms on the Penn State sidelines after he retired. And Jay was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And they showed him a and they and they showed him a picture of this guy in a uniform who seemed kind of small. And Jay laughed and said, "That's our third string quarterback. What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> uh, so, um, so, so Jay knew how absurd the investigation was. Yeah. Um, I've only had limited interaction with the Super Paterno, although I think that the, what I've already discussed some interaction. I think it was very, very relevant. Uh, a couple of the the David Paterno, I think. David Paterno is the, the unknown son um, who who stays quiet, and I actually think he. My guess is he knows that Jerry is innocent. Um, but I have, I, you know, I have lost an enormous amount of respect for uh, the Paterno family, yeah. and even frankly for Joe Paterno in all of this. So, so, um, so sorry to skip around here, but how do you think it would have been different if Joe Paterno didn't pass away two months after all this came to light? That's a great point. I think if Joe Paterno does not die and he remains in decent health, uh, I think everything could have been different. Yeah. Because I think I think that I, I think that Joe people have to remember on his deathbed, Joe says, "Just find the truth." Wow, Just he said find that. The truth. Now that's not that that is not that is not a guy who is convinced of Jerry Sandusky's guilt at that point. Uh, I think that Joe died not believing that Jerry was really a pedophile, which is partially why Jay doesn't believe it. And I think that Joe was the one guy that would have had the power yeah. to, if he had come out and said, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. We need to, we need to hold our fire here. I think everything would have been different. Uh, unfortunately, literally the week that this all breaks, he finds out he had cancer and he's dead two months later. Yeah. So, this is all part of the perfect storm. That's fascinating. And and people and people have to remember one of the great mythologies of this case is that Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky were somehow close or friendly. They were not. Jerry had been out of the loop for ten years. So in in Joe Paterno's mind, he's thinking, well, gee, you know, is it possible that Jerry changed and he became a pedophile and we didn't see it? Or, and of course, he's also 84, 85 years old. His memory's failing. Yeah. I don't, I think, I, I don't think he remembered what Mike McQuarrie had told him. Yep. And he didn't believe that Mike McQuarrie would be lying to him. So he trusted in Mike McQuarrie and that ended up destroying him, destroying Jerry, destroying the administrators, destroying Penn State's reputation. It's a, it's a fascinating part is, that he was 84 years old during this whole thing. I mean, that is an old man. I, he was nearly blind and deaf as well, well or something people, as well, wasn't he? But, uh, I mean, and this has sort of gone on for two here. or three decades or something, Willie. You know, I mean, it's it's insane, isn't it? Well, but, John, we've we, we, we sort of got about 15 minutes left, and... Uh, <laughs> I'm really curious. I'm really curious. We'll, we'll come back to the Zaneski case, um, but I'm re- I, I want the guys. I want every. I want all of our listeners to hear about your O.J. Simpson story, because th- this is this is a super fucking cool story, guy. I mean, John. John has seen it. He's done it. He's fucking bought the T-shirt. You know, so. Just set up the seed, you know, how you came about to sort of meet OJ, you know, that sort of chapter in your life. Tell us who you were dating and what sort of significance that had. 
you want to do this in 15 minutes? <laughs> well, no, come on. I, um, I want to do it in five minutes. I've got a million other questions for you, John. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I'm not sure which. I'm not which, sure which. I, I assume oh, uh, you're, you're uh, referring to the, the to the. Pl- yeah, go on. I assume you're. I feel. I assume you're referring to the part where I I, I played a role in OJ ending up in prison. Right? Yes. Is that what you want? Yes. Tell us how, okay. John. I, I know okay, there are other so, OJ stories, right. but please come on, John. Spill the beans. Okay. Anyway, well, it's it's very complex, but here's the the shortened version of my small role in in O.J. Simpson going to prison. People need to understand that the reason why O.J. went to prison was because he was trying very hard to get around the judgment that the Goldman family had received against him for having killed their son, Ronald Goldman, as well as his ex-wife, Nicole. So this is post, and, Mickey. Mickey's looking right. at me here, John. This, this is post-trial. Um, obviously, he got away with it, and, uh, you know, the, the civil suit had been brought by the Goldmans, and uh, away you go, John. Sorry. Right. So anyway, I, I had come to Los Angeles uh, as a talk show host, and in the course of being a talk show host in Los Angeles, I had met, become friends with, and and pretty seriously dated Kim Goldman, Ron's sister. And um, and so I I, I felt I, I always had an obligation to try to instill some sort of justice in this case because it infuriated me that O.J. got away with this. Uh, in fact, at one point, I had even, uh, back in the, when it happened during the trial, I, I had even... Uh, fantasized about moving to Los Angeles, becoming a caddy at Riviera Country Club, and waiting for my opportunity to assassinate O.J. Simpson after he was acquitted, uh, which was a bad idea, But I and thankfully I never did that. <laughs> but I, I, I felt I, I felt very, I, I, I feel, I, I felt very uh, uh, passionately about this. And so anyway, uh, as fate would have it, the, um, I was living in Burbank, California, and there became news that O.J. was going to do his first public autograph session in Burbank, like 400 yards from my apartment at a memorabilia shop. And, and I thought, OK, um, this is not going to happen. Uh, so I go down to the memorabilia shop and I, I speak to the owner and I say, uh, you have two choices. Uh, uh, you can stop this right now. Uh, or you can do this over my dead body, because uh, I'm not going to allow this to occur, uh, especially not on my block. Uh, and he knew who I was, knew I was a radio talk show host at a very top station in Los Angeles. And he said, uh, well, why don't you talk to the guy who's actually sponsoring this, a guy by the name of Alfred Beardsley. So I talked to Beardsley. I had Beardsley, I had Beardsley on my show. And I bet I bet Alfred Beersley on my show, and I, I maintain I bet him $1,000. I said, Alfred, I will bet you $1,000 that your event with OJ is not going to happen. And he bet me. Well, sure enough, after campaigning on the air, I, I was able to get everyone to, to reconsider, and they canceled OJ's first public autograph session since the, the murders. Beersley ends up not paying me because I didn't want to be paid. He, he paid Fred Goldman, uh, Ron Goldman's father a uh, hundred dollars because he pretended that what was the bet but it was you know a thousand but okay whatever so fred got a hundred dollars out of the deal um and but more importantly what i did not know at the time was that the canceling of this event caused a rift 
between the other guy who was sponsoring this, a guy by the name of Thomas Riccio. So you have a so you have a rift between Thomas Riccio and Albert Beardsley over me canceling or getting this event to be canceled. Now we fast forward to another event. This is a second attempt for OJ to hold a public autograph session in Los Angeles, this time at a horror film convention. And this time I crashed the event with my producer and my co-host. And this is when <laughs> this is this is when when I go after this OJ. Uh, it becomes a physical confrontation. Uh, this thing lasts for like a for like an hour. Um, it makes national news. OJ does sign the autographs, but nobody else ever no, no, nobody else ever does one of these these public autograph sessions. So it, it must have we must have been somewhat effective in dissuading anyone else from from mimicking this. So, but that was that was hosted by Thomas Riccio. All right, so now we fast forward to Las Vegas. And Las Vegas was essentially a way for OJ to try to get back some of his stuff in a way that will avoid the, the Goldman's judgment. Well, what happened was that, Re was that Riccio and Beardsley were the two people involved there. Riccio was trying to set up Beardsley. Beardsley went into that not realizing it was Riccio. Riccio was bringing a recorder because, according to Beardsley, after my uh, uh, efforts destroyed their first attempt, Riccio started to record every interaction he had with Beardsley. So because <laughs> of the recording and because of the rift between Riccio and Beardsley, this is what happens in Las Vegas. The recording is the is really the only evidence of solid nature against OJ. It's why he's in prison. And Beardsley, to the day he died, uh, said publicly that the only reason this whole thing happened was because I had destroyed the original uh, autograph session in Burbank. And when I when I saw the headline, OJ Simpson arrested in memorabilia ice in Las Vegas, I instantly knew, holy shit, Alfred Beardsley and Thomas Riccio have got to be uh, involved in this. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I believe that Riccio set up everybody. I think Thomas Riccio is the, is the scum of the scum of the scum of the earth. I believe he set up Beardsley. I think he set up OJ. Uh, I think he got paid a lot of money for it from TMZ. Uh, and I, and I, and I was, I was glad to see OJ go to prison, but I wish he was still there. <laughs> wow. That's nuts. It is. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Uh, that, that, that's so cool, John. That's so cool. And you, how long were you dating the sister for? Fred Goldman's, not Fred Goldman. It was her, uh, it was his daughter, right? Yeah, I, I would say, um, Probably six months. And this yeah, is obviously coming to my wedding. And this is obviously post trial, right? Or pre trial? Yes, yes, post trial. Post trial. Um, yeah. But and, but but Kim Pip, Kim ended up coming to my my uh, wedding to my current wife. So that was uh, that was good. That's cool. That's cool, man. That's cool. I, I've got a couple of other quick ones actually. Um, are you able to share? And please. Don't feel as though you need to. Are you able to share that joke, the OJ joke? I've n I haven't heard it, but uh, you, oh. you you had a little moment in your career <laughs> where there was oh, a, yeah. an OJ I, joke I, I, that I, I, I probably... sort of resulted in you yeah. know you not having to go into the office the next day, right? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't the next. It wasn't the next day, but I got I got fired from a TV job as a sportscaster in Raleigh, North Carolina, during the trial because I had 
introduced a um, a football game between the playoff game between the Bears and the 49ers. This was the year that the 49ers ended up winning the Super Bowl, and the Bear and the 49ers were a heavy favorite. And I said anybody that believed that the Bears had any chance of being the 49ers must also believe in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and O.J. Simpson's innocence. And, <laughs> you nice. said that on, on the air. And this, uh, and so that I, I thought it was good, uh, good joke, but um, <laughs> it didn't go over well, and uh, it, it resulted in my firing, which, which, I, I you know, I, I, I wasn't really in love with the job anyway, but. Uh, uh, if, if if that had happened today in the internet in the internet era, I would have been internet famous. You would have been viral for sure. Absolutely, man. I mean, that would have been the most <laughs> coolest thing. You were ahead of your time, John. <laughs> I mean, John, we, we've still got a million and one questions, but t- tell me, just so we can sort of bring this back and and sort of tie the loop. Can you tell us? I mean, what are your thoughts on uh, the district attorney? Ray, Ray, what's his name? Uh, Grissa, or however I pronounce that. I mean, Greekar. 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 Yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Explain to the audience very briefly in, in like one minute who he is and what his significance of the case is and what the fuck happened to him, man. I mean, he just disappeared, this guy, right? We're back on Sandusky, right? Yeah. Just trying to tie um, it up well, into a into a loop. Frankly, in, in, I think in, Ray, 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 Ray Greekar is a red herring. Ray Greekar is a red herring who has nothing to do with this case. He happened to be the district attorney uh, in 1998 when there was an episode uh, involving Jerry Sandusky that was not even sexual in nature, that was found to not be credible, and there was no charges filed. Many years later, he disappears. There was nothing going on with the Sandusky case at that time. There were many possible reasons for why a district attorney who was investigating lots of very horrible people would have disappeared. But but because people are dumb and people love conspiracies, they have connected these two dots that have nothing to do with each other. Mm. Okay, so... The, the, there's there's no controversy at all about his disappearance, anything like that, right? In in your mind, anyway. Well, no one knows what I, I'm sure. I'm sure there, there's a controversy about his disappearance, but there's absolutely no evidence or logic that has anything at all to do with Jerry Sandusky. Okay, cool. All right, last one, and and I think this will be a good bow to tie upon this. Is you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation that there's an importance to this Sandusky case that's larger than ju- just this case. And uh, you can see a lot of these things in 2018 media where we, especially with social media, it exacerbates it. We think we have the facts of a case, the media gloms onto it, and then after the fact, it maybe isn't that way. Do you see this as kind of the starting point of that, of that whole culture? Like, like, how do you compare and contrast that, that Sandusky case to where we are now with media? I do think that this is far more common than we would ever like to believe. I, I think this is exaggerated. I don't I mean this is the the worst example I've ever heard of. Um but uh I don't think it's that unusual. We've already referenced Duke Lacrosse and there are, you know okay. there was a, a, a Virginia rape case in, in Rolling Stone. Uh there were some other uh, stories similar, but I, I do think that the important part of here is in the modern media, the modern media is all about narrative and latch 
latching on to a narrative that they like because it fits their agenda, whether that's ratings or politics or what have you. And because the there's so much fear for stepping outside the herd and and when people start virtue signaling and this is what twitter has basically become all about virtue signaling the truth doesn't matter it's about proving how virtuous you are well mm. that can lead to some great injustices that's how the you know the, the salem witch trials happened and i think we are living in a very dangerous age when you know as winston churchill allegedly said you know the the a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on and that's what happened in this case. Okay. All right. This is, I promise you, this is the last one. This is the last question. This is my 60 squillion John Ziegler dollar question. John, let's assume that uh, the Jerry Zandusky case is overturned as a result of your efforts and other efforts of people who are going against the MSM, the mainstream media narrative. What do you have to gain from that? Well, that's not going to happen. But let's assume, <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm giving you a hypothetical here, John. Let's assume. No, it's not, it's not, it's not, not going to happen. But what do you have to gain from I'm, that? Because I, I'm an advocate, and that's, that's one of my questions. Well, the... I don't think you've well, really got anything answer. to gain apart from to sort of regain that credibility, no. right? You, there's nothing financial. Well, there's nothing there, you know, right? There's. It's not going to happen, number one. I've accepted years ago it's not going to happen because of the perfect storm of factors against it. Um, but even if it did, by some fantasy, let, let's pretend that um, you know Ronan Farrow, who's about the only person I can think of that would have the power to potentially this case, yep. Ronan Farrow suddenly decided to put his, put his entire credibility on the line and say, hey, wait a minute, this story is bullcrap. Don't pretend that happened. I, I maintain that I will actually not only not get no credit, I actually believe I will get blamed. Huh. I, I truly believe that if it ever got fixed, I would get blamed because the media narrative about me would be, well, if Ziegler had been more credible and if he hadn't been such an asshole about it, <laughs> he would have believed in it. Those um, twisty and, um, motherfuckers. No, no, I'm being totally serious. I'm being totally serious. I've accepted long ago that there is no scenario where my life is made whole by this. Mm -hmm. It does not exist because, again, the media, if this would ever happen, would need an excuse. And I would be the excuse. If, if, if Ziegler had been a, a celebrity or if he had been credible or if he hadn't been an asshole, uh, then we would have believed which is none of it, none of which is true, but it doesn't matter because that's the that's the narrative they will create. So there there's no scenario where yeah. it's cool. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, John Ziegler. What a cool dude! I'm sure you'll agree, John. A fucking uh, warrior, man. <laughs> John is a warrior. What a badass, John. Uh, wh where can people find you on the internet if if people want to come and uh, look at your work and and where, where have you got a website? Well, have you got the, the, some social media? <clears throat> Everything about the, the Sandusky case is at framingpaterno.com. My Twitter handle is Zygmunt Freud, Ooh. Uh, which is a take on an old college nickname. Like um, the website for my podcast is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Okay, so framingpaterno.com. Great site. 
and free speech broadcast. What was the other one? Just, just freespeechbroadcasting.com. Freespeechbroadcasting.com. Excellent. John, I know my, my brother, my true brother Jimmy here, it's, it's been a, a wonderful experience for him to have you on. It's fantastic. It's yeah. great. <laughs> Thanks I, so much, I love John. You, John, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was great. So, uh, yeah, you can find me uh, at Crypto Mickey on Twitter. Find me in Bangkok with Jimmy on the streets. And, yeah, uh, Jimmy, a.k.a. Ryan Brippen. You, you can find me in on the streets with uh, the, uh, the, the real Delirious yeah. and <laughs> in people's kitchens, too. Yeah. Jimmy, right. Jimmy the Chin Breadbin. Jimmy the Chin Breadbin, yeah. Okay. Uh, John, thank you so much. This has been This Strange Life. You're, uh, you're one of my heroes, week. John. I love you, man. All right. Peace out. Take care. Oh. Thanks, John. <laughs>